0: Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson.
1: And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 1065 FM.
0: This is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us, and celebrating evidence-based policy.
1: We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get
0: started. You know, you see a lot of people smoking these electronic cigarettes these days. In fact, I think I see more people smoking electronic cigarettes than real cigarettes, I wonder if part of that is just that term electronic cigarette. It sounds so up-to-date and contemporary, you know, that it kind of links in with our fascination with digital technology that e-cigarettes might be as cool as using Facebook or Twitter or Google or what have you. So just that term electronic cigarette is pretty good marketing. I'm pretty ambivalent about electronic cigarettes. On the one hand, at least people aren't smoking tobacco because tobacco plants are so toxic in so many different ways. And there are some studies indicating that e-cigarettes are healthier than smoking tobacco. But on the other hand, you wonder how healthy it really is to be sucking all these artificial chemicals into the lungs like that. And I also wonder about secondary smoke. What's the effect of e-cigarette smoke on innocent bystanders? Now, there was a paper that came out in February of 2018 by a group of researchers at John Hopkins University in Maryland. They published their article in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives. And they looked at this question of how safe are e-cigarettes. And they basically concluded that they're not really any better than smoking tobacco cigarettes. So what these researchers did is they recruited 56 different volunteers, people who were already e-cigarette smokers. And the e-cigarettes that these smokers were using were the tank style. I think that's the most common kind of e-cigarettes. It's kind of a stubby little smoking device, about four or five inches long. What's unusual about this study is that instead of going out and buying brand new e-cigarettes for the volunteers to use, They just told the volunteers to bring their own e-cigarettes, so they were already being used, and they thought this would give a more realistic view of what's actually coming out of those cigarettes. The researchers sampled three different things. What's in that refilling liquid that the smokers put into the e-cigarettes at the beginning? Secondly, What's in the aerosol, the smoke, that comes out of the e-cigarette during the smoking process? And then thirdly, what's in the tank of e-liquid after it's been smoked? What these researchers measured were the metals that were in these different sources of of e-liquids. They didn't look at organic molecules or anything like that. They were just focusing on the metals. Now the lowest amount of metals that they found in those three liquids, remember that's the liquid you start off with, the aerosol, the smoke, and then what's left in the little tank after it's been smoked. The lowest levels of metal was in the e-liquid before it was used. But what they observed is that the process of heating up those liquids to make the aerosol, the metal coil that's inside that e-cigarette actually puts metal into the liquid. And so they did find significant amounts of metal, both in the aerosol coming out of the e-cigarette, and then after smoking, that e-liquid that's left in the tank had accumulated quite a bit of metal also. The metals that were in the highest concentration were chromium, zinc, nickel, iron, copper, and lead. Now the most dangerous of these metals are chromium and lead. Chromium is a carcinogen And lead attacks the nervous system. Now, these high levels of lead are especially concerning because lead is a metal that accumulates in the body. Our body really has no way of getting rid of it. And it has very severe health effects, even at very low levels of exposure. Experts basically say there is no acceptable level of lead in the body. It's especially bad for children. It's been linked to hyperactivity, delayed growth, and lower IQ. But even in adults, lead can damage our red blood cells and can lead to cardiovascular difficulties and kidney disease. So chromium and lead, the other metals like iron and zinc, they're unhealthy also. They can produce lung irritations, they can cause chest pain and shortness of breath. So it looks like the problem with e-cigarettes is the heating coil that's used to heat up the liquid. It's made out of an alloy, and alloys are combinations of different metals, and some of these metals are these lead and chromium and zinc and copper ions that are ending up in the solution. So then you might think, well, what if you change those heating coils frequently? Maybe that would reduce the amount of metal getting into the liquids and into the aerosol. But they found that actually it gets even worse with a fresh coil, So heating coils actually give off less and less metal as they're being used, but they're still putting off quite a bit. So this is the first study that looked at a large number of brands, a lot of different brands of e-cigarettes, and it's the first one to measure the amounts of metals in the e-liquids before and after smoking. One surprising thing they observed was how much arsenic was in these e-cigarettes. About 10% of the e-cigarettes examined had arsenic in them, and they couldn't even figure out what the source is of this arsenic. But that's another very toxic chemical. So the bottom line is, The chemical that they put into the e-cigarettes don't have significant amounts of metal in them, but the aerosol that's produced by heating it up and then the liquid that's left over in the e-cigarette does have quite a bit of metal in it. The researchers don't produce the data, but they say that they're preparing another publication where they measured metal levels in the saliva and urine of e-smokers, and they found that the saliva and urine also contained a lot of heavy metals. One of the authors of this study, Anna Marie Rule, is quoted as saying, It's important for the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the e-cigarette companies, and vapors themselves to know that these heating coils, as currently made, seem to be leaking toxic metals, which then get into the aerosols that vapors inhale. So, I'm glad I read this paper. I've noticed ever since I did, I find myself steering clear of e-cigarette smoke.
1: Researchers in Japan published a study in Frontier in Psychology that showed that artificial intelligence can be tricked by optical illusions. So in an effort to understand the brain and how the cerebral cortex predicts visual motion, an AI was developed based on the theory of predictive coding, Predictive coding is the model that the brain predicts the visual world around itself all of the time based on internal models. And the errors between those internal models and the real world are used to help further re- refine those internal models. So using deep neural networks, which are a part of the family of machine learning techniques, based on learning data representation rather than task-specific algorithms, to represent the brain with a machine they call PredNet. So they trained the AI, PredNet, with a natural scene video of the self-motion of the viewer and then showed it optical illusions which to humans appear as if they're moving. So if you can think back to some of the optical illusions you've seen and understand which ones I'm talking about. For example, there is this image of nine large circles in a grid that are filled with patterns of colors. That pattern is repeated between the circles. So when you stare at the image it kind of looks like the circles are spinning around. Well this machine also perceived the image As being in motion. So this means that the researchers have created a model for our human brains on how they perceive visual input and it supports the idea that our brains work through this process of predictive coding. Neural networks are amazing and there's a lot of work being done with these machines. They've been used to diagnose cancers with great accuracy. Um, They've been used in vehicle control, face identification, data mining, email spam filters, and so much more. One example of a new discovery, thanks to AI, is the identification of thousands of previously unknown species of viruses. This was reported on in Nature from a presentation at the meeting organized by the Department for Energy. Simon Rue, a computational biologist, trained a machine to identify sequences from the virus family Anioverde using 805 known sequences of virus in this family and 2,000 other bits of DNA sequence, so it could tell the difference between the two. This family of viruses is interesting because they live in bacteria and are known to alter their host behavior. By then allowing the machine to sort through metagenomic datasets, the computer clustered what were the Innoverde genomes into different species, thus identifying a large number of new viruses that are part of this family. Right now, some of the hang-ups with artificial neural networks is that they require too much training for some complex real-world applications. Interestingly, there are some thought problems that no neural network has yet to be able to solve. One of those problems is known as a traveling salesman. In this problem, the question is asked, Given a list of cities, and the distances between each pair of cities, what is the shortest possible route to visit each city and return to the origin of city? Nor has any AI been able to solve the eight-queen puzzle, which is the problem of placing eight chess queens on an 8x8 eight eight chessboard so that no two queens threaten each other. So, despite these issues with AIs that we have so far, there's still a lot of work being put into the development of neural networks and other types of artificial intelligence. We'll probably be hearing a lot more about how neural networks can improve our lives as they continue to be developed and integrated into real world applications. So, I look forward to some of these advances that are coming out.
0: That's really interesting. I use um, neural networks for a couple specific tasks. Do you think? And you're talking about one where they can measure, uh, recognize visual illusions. Do you think they could stack that on top of other tasks? Do you think an art of, or does that take so much memory that it has to
1: be a standalone? Yeah, I think part of the problem right now with developing neural networks is the amount of computer power and and uh, input that they need to run these. So a lot of them usually only designated towards one specific task. So what do you use AI for?
0: I use it to predict introns oh. in DNA sequences. It's very good too. It's very it's very precise. <laughs> I investigated this story that got a little bit of airplay recently. It's a paper that was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and it really raises questions about how effective cardiologists are in treating heart disease. They examined the records of something like 35,000 different patients who were displaying a disease called acute myocardial infarction, AMI. That's just a fancy way of saying heart attacks. They looked at the outcome for patients who had had heart attacks over a six-year period ending in 2012, and they basically looked at the mortality rates for all these patients after they had checked into teaching hospitals throughout the country. And they just had one question. What happened to mortality rates due to AMI during the short period of time when most of the cardiologists were out of town at a conference? So what happens to mortality due to heart attacks when there's 16,000 different medical doctors all attending the same cardiologist conference? Hey, you guessed it. When the cardiologists were out of town educating themselves about the latest techniques for treating heart disease, the mortality rates for heart disease actually dropped. The patients back in their hometown actually lived longer when their primary cardiologist was out of town than when they're in town. Now, these same authors had observed the same phenomenon before. For this paper, they focused on one specific cardiology conference. There's one medical procedure that is most implicated in this. It's when patients receive angioplasty treatment. Angioplasty is done when there's too much plaque buildup around the blood vessels, around the heart. And what the cardiologist does is install a stent, which is like a a tube, into the blood vessel to kind of hold it open. This is what they use when the patient has atherosclerosis. What's interesting about this procedure is that it's actually less invasive than open-heart surgery because all they're doing is accessing the blood vessels through the groin or through the arm and then install this stent in the main artery. So it's less invasive than open-heart surgery, and you'd think that would save lives rather than increase rates of mortality. But the installation of these stents is really very technical, a sort of an art. And so it's possible that the physicians who are best at it, the ones with the most experience, they're the ones who are at the cardiology conference. So maybe the cardiologists who don't quite have as much experience or expertise are the ones that are left behind in the teaching hospital. And so they're the ones who attempt this procedure. So that's one possible explanation for higher mortality rates. But the authors actually present a stronger argument that what's really happening is that since the physicians who are the best at installing these stents are are out of town, the physicians that are still in the teaching hospital apply other approaches. Maybe they are prescribing medicines or taking other approaches to solve this problem. And so the cardiologists that are really good at applying stents into the body might be recommending a technique that other physicians aren't, and that's what's leading to the higher death rate. In other words, these expert stent installers are recommending a technique that they're really good at, whereas maybe some other approaches to dealing with this disease might be more appropriate and cause less mortality. Now, I do have to tell you the difference between the mortality rates during normal operating times and that one week of the year when all the cardiologists are at this conference. The difference is only 1.5%. So it's not a huge difference, but when you think of the thousands of people who go to hospital every year with heart problems, it could be impacting hundreds if not thousands of patients. So the implication of this article is that maybe physicians are jumping the gun a little bit, going to a procedure that might be a little more radical than what's really required for the disease. But hopefully physicians will look into this situation more.
1: So I saw this frightening report that came out from the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, which is... Human rights defenders who are challenging big corporations are being killed, assaulted, harassed, and suppressed in growing numbers. Um, so their data shows that there's a 34% rise in attacks on campaigners defending land, environment, and labor rights in the face of corporate activity. So, I mean, this was just really frightening to me because we need these individuals to stand up and support um you know, our planet, and and we may not always know what these corporations are doing. So some of these people on the ground in other countries recognize what's going on. In one case, Shell Oil in Nigeria um, has been caught paying bribes to government officials. They've paid the military to conduct raids in protesters' homes and have hanged innocent protesters to suppress protesting against Shell in Nigeria. So the number of incidents they found um, to have sharply risen...
0: And was this in the United States?
1: So this was looking at um, human rights defenders globally. So not specific to the United States, but yeah. basically everyone. And I think that's in part because it seems like these large corporations do try to take advantage of other countries, and especially third world countries like Nigeria that have oil that they want.
0: Did they did they have data about the perpetrators of the violence? Is it police?
1: Um, it does seem like usually the violence is occurring by those in that area that are being bribed by the countries. So it seems like they have influence with the military and government. Yeah, officials so it might be to,
0: government officials. Yeah,
1: to support you know their interests because um, it can be seen as as a way to help the country if you have a large corporation in there maybe providing foreign money that pours into. These communities. So at the surface level, it looks good, but if these corporations are, you know, destroying the environment at the same time, that's a big problem. So there seems like they're trying to cover, cover that up.
0: Yeah, and that would have such a stifling effect on activists in the area. You think what? Look what happened after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It, the civil rights movement just really stopped for a while. It, it just really changed. Same with Malcolm X.
1: Yeah. So it's really important. Hopefully, we can find ways to support um, these activists, so we know what's going on. Because it's hard to stay informed and know how these companies may be um, violating either human right. Excuse me. How these companies are violating human rights or how they are um, affecting our environment. Those countries may not have the same rules for pollution um, or destruction of of land that we do here.
0: Yeah, especially here that's going on in South and Central America, but and you mentioned um, Nigeria and other places in Africa.
1: There are, I believe, out of China, a lot of fishing boats um, that have destroyed reefs, and it's something that we hardly hear about. But you know, uh, there's a big problem with overfishing in the environment, and we don't hear from. Actually, I do know of an example of of a activist that was silenced that's trying to. Um, speak out against you know the destruction of these reefs so every once in a while you do hear a case but you know there's probably a reason why we're not hearing from more individuals
0: hey here's a question for you who is the most science friendly president of the united states that we've ever had well a while back the union of concerned scientists actually asked the public that question I don't know if you know much about Union of Concerned Scientists, but there was a group of scientists who organized at MIT back in 1969. And they formed this nonprofit science advocacy organization. This was 1969 in the middle of the Vietnam War. What they were advocating for back then was a shift in government funded scientific research away from military technology and towards investing more in fundamental research, research on environmental and social problems. So, drumroll, please. Who was the most science friendly president we've ever had? The winner was. Theodore Roosevelt. He was called the naturalist because he founded a bunch of national parks. Second place, Jimmy Carter, the engineer. Third place, Abraham Lincoln, the inventor. Fourth place, Richard Nixon, for establishing a lot of environmental protections. Fifth place was George H.W. Bush for banning chlorofluorocarbons to protect the ozone layer. Next was Dwight Eisenhower for military intelligence. And then Thomas Jefferson, the educator, and then John F. Kennedy for going to the moon. So if you think about that list of presidents who are most science-friendly, you realize, oh boy, they need a lot of help. Presidents really need a lot of advice on how to deal with science policy issues. It's not only presidents who need good science advice, but government officials at all levels need help with complicated science questions. And that help has always been there. There are about 200 different federal advisory committees on scientific and technical issues advising the president and other government officials all the way up and down the hierarchy. These scientists are trained in specific disciplines and they advise government agencies so that these agencies can make decisions based on scientific evidence rather than intuition or speculation. Of course, government by itself does a lot of science just on a routine basis, monitoring the environment, evaluating the safety of the chemicals we use, preventing the spread of disease, managing natural disasters, enforcing laws like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. How are these 200 different science advisory panels doing now with the new administration? The Union of Concerned Scientists just issued a report in January 18 about that. This group examined something like 70 different science advisory committees and compared their activity now with that of the Obama and the G.W. Bush administrations. And it's not good news. At this point in the administration, the Obama and the Bush administrations had appointed three times more scientists into these advisory positions than the Trump administration has. For instance, there is no current president science advisor, and the White House Office of Science and Technology has only a skeletal staff right now, 38 people. It was three times that at this point in the early Obama administration. So a lot of science advisory committees just haven't been formed since Trump became president. And those that have been formed are actually not meeting as much as they should or have in the past Two-thirds of these science advisory committees are in violation of their charters for the number of meetings they're supposed to have. I'll give you a couple examples of the good work that these science advisory panels are doing, or have done in the past, anyway. Lead. Now everyone knows how dangerous lead is. It's very toxic to our neurological system. It lowers the IQ of children who are exposed to lead. But back in the 1970s, there was lead in our gasoline because it increased the performance of the cars. There was lead in our paint, and these science advisors read the literature. They saw the writing on the wall back in the 1970s, and they advised the government to outlaw lead in gasoline and to have lead removed from house paint, and that's what happened. And since that time, the average amount of lead in children's blood is only about 10% of what it used to be. I'll give you another example of the good work these science advisory committees do. It has to do with labeling of antidepressants. Back in the early 2000s, antidepressants were commonly prescribed to children And it was observed by the medical community that suicide rates among children was going up. And there was concern that there could be a link between taking antidepressants and suicide. And so an FDA panel recommended in 2004 that there be put special labels on antidepressant bottles, discouraging them to be used by children. There were fewer prescriptions of antidepressants for children. So these science panels can really be helpful. I should mention that the members of these science panels are experts. They're often PhDs in various disciplines, and they don't actually get paid for doing this work. They might receive travel stipends and things like that. So it's basically not costing the government a lot of money to get their advice. One of the worst examples is with the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. The current head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, has decided that no scientists who receive EPA funding are allowed to serve on a science advisory panel, but that state government representatives can be on those panels and scientists from the private sector can. So now the EPA Science Advisory Board has 40% fewer members from academia, but three times the number of members from industry, which is the very thing that the EPA is regulating. So it's sort of like having the fox guard the hen house. And this might also be why there's been a rollback of at least 19 different environmental regulations in the last year. That number is increasing every week, though. And there's been a 60% drop in pollution fines. But the White House and the EPA are just two examples. This report lists a lot of other science advisory panels that are either not being replenished, or they're not meeting, or they're being neglected. The primary author of this report, Jenna Reid, is quoted in an interview that the Trump administration is sending the message that it prefers making decisions based on politics and ideology rather than evidence. And the Union of Concerned Scientists report makes three recommendations. One, that current and former science advisors speak out. Two, that the Nonpartisan Government Accountability Office should investigate. And three, that Congress should hold hearings on this topic. I'm pretty excited about TESS, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite called TESS. This satellite was launched from Cape Canaveral by NASA on April 18th, and it's going to fire its positioning thrusters for the last time on May 30th. Once TESS gets into its proper position, or its proper orbit, I should say, the satellite's going to use its array of wide-angle camera lenses to photograph the stars. And what it's looking for are exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets that are orbiting around other stars. Right now there are 3,800 known exoplanets, but it's believed TESS is going to find thousands more. Oh boy, Star Wars and Star Trek would be a lot less fun to watch if it wasn't for all these exoplanets that are out there. What's provocative about TESS, again that's the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, what's exciting about it is its orbit around the Earth. It's going to have an elliptical orbit around the Earth. Part of the time, it'll be as far away as the Moon, and then part of the time, about every two weeks, it'll come close enough to the Earth to actually send its data back, and then once it's downloaded that data, it'll orbit right back out to eh, the same distance from the Earth as the Moon is and take more photographs, and it'll, it'll repeat that elliptical orbit every two weeks. The advantage of this elliptical orbit is that the cameras won't have the interference from the Earth. Things like the Van Allen belt and etc. won't be encumbering their photographs. The way they use these photographs to predict these exoplanets is that they'll look at the brightness of each of the stars. And if it wavers, if it fluctuates they assume that something is passing between that sun, that star that we're seeing, and us and that something might be a planet. So it's going to photograph the stars of the southern hemisphere in the first year and then focus on the stars of the northern hemisphere the second year. So TESS is a real engineering innovation and it's really going to help us understand the stars a whole lot better.
1: As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science.
0: We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it.
1: Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us.
0: If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at (laughs) forwardradio.org.